Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, February 8th. According to data from Health Canada, the use of medical assistance in dying or MAID is surpassing projections. We discuss increasing interest in the practice with Dr. Sonu Gaind, professor at the University of Toronto and chief of psychiatry at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Next, a recent study of centuries-old ocean sponges shows that the Earth may have been warming longer and to greater temperatures than we first believed. We get details on the study from Julie LaRoche, oceanographer and associate scientific director at Dalhousie University's Ocean Frontier Institute. And finally, this week, Calgary Flames legend Lanny McDonald's life was saved by a couple of bystanders when he went into cardiac arrest. Do you know what to do if you're witness to someone experiencing a heart attack? We get some tips from Ben Marasco, Managing Director of First Aid Training Calgary. Data from Health Canada points to the use of medical assisted in dying or made is surpassing projections in our country and in fact standing out globally. Joining us now is Dr. Sanu Gaind, Professor at the University of Toronto and Chief of Psychiatry at uh, Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Good morning to you. Good morning, and thank you for bringing this issue to your listeners. We appreciate it. Well, very timely. Thank you for your time. And so how, uh, Doctor, do you interpret the Health Canada data and the higher-than-expected use of the MAID system year-over-year in our country? Well, uh, you know, no other country on the planet has seen the explosive growth that we've seen in MAID since it was introduced just a few short years ago. You know, this started in 2016. I think that year there may have been 1,000 Canadian deaths by MAID that first year. And that was part of the year, not the entire year. But since then, it's skyrocketed every single year to the point where in 2022, which is the last year we have the national data for, over 13,000 Canadians were provided made, and that represents over 4% of all Canadian deaths. In some provinces, it was at 55 6.5%, and it's going increasingly higher. And within there, we're seeing some troubling signs of a gender gap emerging of more women than men getting made for certain reasons. So, Doctor, as Chief of Psychiatry, do you think then, I mean, what's your perspective on it? Do you think people are using it for the wrong reasons? Are there, you know, sort of mental health implications and people are just trying to find a a way out, perhaps, on their own terms? Or is there something else? I think what we're finding is actually what many of us predicted and were concerned about when expansions started to occur. I should point out, I'm not a conscientious objector to MAID. I actually chaired my former hospital's MAID team. But with the expansions that have happened, it's doing something else. And to really answer your question, we need to recognize there are two different groups of people getting MAID for different reasons. One set gets it for reasons it was brought in for initially, to avoid painful end-of-life suffering. But now, as we expand it further and further from end of life, you know, now people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who have many decades left to live, can also get it for any disability. When we do that, we see that social suffering, poverty, loneliness, other things like that, also come into play for those people. And so that's what the concern is as we expand it further. And with the expansion to soul mental illness that they had been talking about for this March, And that's been framed, in my view, both overly simplistically and misleadingly as just being about 
oh, it would be discrimination if we don't provide it for mental illness. The reverse is actually true. Mm. It would be discrimination if we provide it for false pretenses to those with mental illness who actually could have gotten better, and we provided it in periods of suicidality. So how do we remedy this issue in the sense that is this a government legislation thing? We're hearing experts like you who've chaired the committee previously when it comes to made from, from your sector uh, now having some issues. Where do we go from here? Well, so at this point, the government has said it recognizes the need to pause and it has introduced legislation to say we need at least another three years to look at if this can be done responsibly. I think that's a good first step, but we also need to recognize that there are some who are not happy with that, specifically the senators uh, who initially proposed this. So getting to your question, the expansion to made for mental illness did not come out of any legal ruling. It did not come out of any consultation in a fulsome way. It came out of the Senate as a proposal by one of the senators, Senator Kutcher. And at that time, it didn't ask a question. It set a predetermined agenda to say, we will expand MAID for soul mental illness by whatever date. It didn't say, should we? So I think to do this honestly, we need to take a step back and answer the key questions of, can we predict when mental illnesses will not improve? Because right now the evidence tells us we're wrong more than half the time when we try to do that. And can we separate suicidality from psychiatric made requests so we don't expose the most marginalized to premature unnecessary deaths? Another great example you just gave of a politician, you know, putting themselves where a, a, a medical professional should be used and advised on, on you know, very, very important uh, topics like this one. I'm curious what your thought is on this. I got a text from a friend who said, um, in their opinion, it was offered as an option way too early with their mom because once she got it in her head, she decided she didn't want to be a burden and that was that and they could not change her mind. She wanted to die with dignity and die with pride and unfortunately, they couldn't change her mind. Do do you think we offer it too early? I I think that for some people, what has happened is we've introduced it as a solution that is being provided to them as here is a compassionate way to end your suffering. And we haven't looked at other ways to help them live better. And in in terms of feeling a burden, we know from the national data that over one third of people who have gotten made, over one third of that 13,000 Canadians in 2022, they cited feeling a burden as one of the causes of suffering that fueled their made request. I, I do want to make one comment just about the pol- political or the introduction of this, because Senator Kutcher actually is a psychiatrist. Okay, fair. So he is also a physician. However, what I will point out that the view to expand made for soul mental illness is not reflective of where most of the profession is. And I should point out something process-wise, that the delay is not a foregone conclusion because the dissenting senators, including Senator Kutcher, have actually intimated that the Senate might decide otherwise and have openly said that, in their view, the Senate is there to, quote, protect against tyranny of the majority. Mm. 
Very interesting. Mm -hmm. And again, thank you for your time and your insight on this topic, Dr. Gaind. Thank you very much. Dr. Sanu Gaind, a professor at the University of Toronto and chief of psychiatry at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre. Recent study of centuries-old ocean sponges show the Earth may have been warming longer and to greater temperatures than we have believed. Joining us to help break down what this means and why it's important is Julie LaRoche, oceanographer and associate scientific director at Dalhousie University's Ocean Frontier Institute. Good morning, Julie. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you uh, give us a paint us a little picture, break down kind of exactly what an ocean sponge is? I'm thinking of the sponge in my kitchen at my sink, and it's probably not quite like that. Yeah, so those are different uh, sponges from what you have in uh, in your kitchen, and they're um, basically they have a skeleton that is solid, so it's made up of calcium carbonate, and uh, so these sponges grow by laying uh, layers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, similar to what you would find in tree rings, for example, and from these layers that are that are deposited on the sponge, you can tell uh, something about their growth and also about the temperature at which they were exposed in the past. So, Julie, the information that we've gleaned from these sponges is that Earth's temperature rise has been underestimated, with data indicating we've already surpassed the 1.5 degree target. What are your thoughts on this study? Well, uh, so what the authors did in, in their paper is to extend the, the series, the, the time series of the temperature into the past, uh, well beyond um, uh, earlier than what has been measured with, temp, uh, with thermometers in the global ocean and uh, starting in the 1850s. So they were able to go back to temperature records um, using the strontium-calcium uh, ratio in those sponges, they were able to go back another century, so into the mid-1700s. Mid, so if... So we, sorry, finish your thought. I apologize. Yeah, so th this is uh, the data that we don't have, uh, that we didn't have right now. So, like, it's, it's important to go back to the source of uh, the the heating in the, the atmosphere. Uh, I was going to ask you, you know, if this is a, then an accelerated timeline of warming, global warming. Uh, how does that change how we look at climate scenarios down the road in the future? Well, um, as the authors uh, pointed out, it might mean that we have less time to solve the issues. So we might have to accelerate um, you know, reducing uh, the emissions, the greenhouse gases emissions. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's a, a little bit of uncertainty in, in the work, and then uh, it's on one one part of the ocean. And so the authors also mentioned that, you know, they made assumptions to um, uh, to uh, th that this would be the the best place to measure the. the uh, paleo temperature for certain reasons of uh, like currents in the ocean and so on. So they make some very strong arguments, I, I think, that that their measurements are uh, valuable, certainly worth um, considering their findings. Spending some time this morning with Julie LaRoche, oceanographer and associate scientific director at Dalhousie University's Ocean Frontier Institute. Julie, when it comes to these sponges themselves, they're centuries old. How reliable are they? Do we have data to, to put toward these sponges and the credibility of the results that we're seeing in this survey? 
<clears throat> yeah, so what the authors did is they first dated the, the sponges, and so for doing that, they used different um, isotopes. So, for example, they used uranium and uh, ratios of other elements to uh, to be able to get these uh, these dates, so knowing what uh, uh, how old these sponges were. And then the next thing that they did is look at the strontium and the calcium ratio, and then so these sponges, they laid this calcium carbonate um, um, matrix, but there's also a little bit of strontium that's incorporated, and and when they lay these these layers, and then so the authors they calibrated the strontium to calcium ratio with modern day temperature, so the period of 1960 to 1990, I believe it was. <coughs> so they used this uh, this this calibration as this proxy to go back to temperatures that would have been in the 1700s. So. Uh, yes, it, 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 this is a valid approach. So this is how um, paleo uh, geochemists work, um, and it's it's accepted. Um, it, it, sometimes it's important to know a little bit more about the biology of the organism to see if this calibration could extend into the past. It's really quite fascinating, and if you Google these sponges, they're really they're quite spectacular. Thank you so much for telling us all about it, Julie. Appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, the pleasure's for me. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Julie LaRoche, oceanographer, associate scientific director at Dalhousie University's Ocean Frontier Institute. one if they had a heart attack in front of you. Joining us to talk about the importance of learning life-saving first aid is Ben Morasco, who's the Managing Director of First Aid Training Calgary. Good morning, Ben. Thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me. February is Heart Month, a time to celebrate Valentine's Day, but also to talk about our hearts and heart health. Uh, and just last week, your organization, First Aid Training Calgary, announcing it's going to provide $25,000 in free CPR training to try and make sure that when something happens in front of us, we're able to deal with it. Now, let's give the perfect example of this, Ben. Like, I mean, the timing, obviously not good news for Lanny McDonald, but it cements why you're offering a program like this, right? Lanny suffered cardiac arrest at the Calgary airport this week. What would we all do if that happened in front of us? I don't know that most would know. Yeah, unfortunately, only about 18% of people in Canada have done a CPR first aid course in the last three years. And 75% of cardiac arrest happens at home. So Lanny was in, you know, an unfortunate place, you know, with first responders around on site, in public, lots of people there to help. But, you know, not everyone's fortunate enough for, mm -hmm. to be that case. You know, again, you're way more likely to have to do CPR on a loved one than someone in public or at work. And Ben, it's interesting because when I've heard about it, and I am one of these people, I've never taken the course. That's that's guilty as charged right here. I, I hear time and time again that the best place to be would be in the hospital, absolutely. But the next best place to be would be with somebody, you know, on the scene. And you think, well, what could I do? What kind of a difference could it make for somebody who's not a medical professional but has this training? How much further ahead would somebody be in the situation? Yeah, you know, the survival of cardiac arrest out in the community is only about 10%. But when early bystander CPR and ideally an AED is used, our chance of survival actually increases two to three times as much. Mm -hmm. You know, if I, if I am in that place, I definitely want that increased chance of survival.
And how horrible to be in the position where you're you're looking helpless and you and you don't know what to do. So you're you and your organization trying to help that. Talk about this twenty five thousand dollars in free CPR training. How, how do people get involved in this? Yeah. Um, so registration opens this morning at ten a.m. on our website. Um, all registration has to be done on our website, not over the phone. Um, it opens on our website at ten a.m. There's a whole bunch of free sessions for people to take advantage of. You know, we really want to promote. You know, people know knowing what to do, you know, in celebration of Heart Month. We're just a little local small business wanting to give back and really encourage people to get trained. Only 40% of people that suffer cardiac arrest actually get help prior to professionals helping. We want to see that number really increased, not only in Calgary, Alberta, but ultimately in Canada as well. Ben, what's a, what's a training session look like? How many hours and, do, you know, what sort of a makeup are you looking for? You have to be a certain age. You have to be over 18. Yeah, no, there's no minimum age. You know, kids as young as six, seven, eight years old have been able to effectively do CPR. Um, for a basic CPR course, the one we're giving away for free here, it's a five and a half hour course. You're going to learn CPR for infants, children, adults, choking skills, bleeding control. You know, there's courses that are longer, but, you know, in, in half a day, you can really learn, you know, those critical life-saving skills. Um, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how, you said you're a little organization. So how, how do you provide something like this? It's, it's expensive to provide these courses. They are expensive to do. You can often do them through your work. And if you're at, you have a job, uh, you know, a, a career in a business, you should maybe ask, is this something that we could have brought in and, and make sure that we have some classes? But how do you get the money to, to fund something like this? Yeah, you know, we, every year we want to find some way to give back to the community. You know, Calgary continues to support us every year. So we want to, you know, find something to you know help support calgary in it and you know it so many people you know do a cpr course because they're told to do a cpr course you know even myself you know i'm obviously trained but you know if i go into cardiac arrest it doesn't matter if i've been trained i need to rely on those around me to help so really we all need to be each other's you know first responders what do you tell people for example and i know that you're process and your aim Ben is to get people trained but what if I what if I don't have that training and I'm there and I witness somebody having a cardiac arrest what can I do yeah. So if you witness someone that has suddenly collapsed for unknown reasons, you know, let's make sure that scene's safe. Let's look around, see what's going on, see if we can wake them, see if there's any response, open that airway, check for breathing. And the best piece is right away, we should be calling 911. 911 will coach us through all of these steps, step by step by step, describe exactly what we should be doing. And once the ambulance is on the way, they'll even coach us how to do compression-only CPR. You know, so even if we haven't been trained, that's best practice. You mm-hmm. know, actually build that muscle memory. You know, 911 can really help coach us and, you know, at least help us do something for the person. Something is always better than nothing. Our texter Dave just said, I just took my two-day life-saving course. It's been on my list to do for a while. I'm really glad I did it. I'm having a grandson and another grandchild on the way. Plus, all my friends are getting old. Though not, <laughs> though not me, Dave adds. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? We're, you know, we're getting to that age where things happen. And, and it doesn't have to be older people. It happens to younger people too. But would you would you want to be standing there helpless? I don't think anybody would, would want that feeling, right? So why wouldn't you just take a course? Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that comment that, you know, you know, you've never done one. People, people, we hear that all the time from people. Another really common one is, oh, I did it years ago. You know what? I may, might know what to do. You know, cardiovascular disease affects millions of Canadians. Mm-hmm. Cardiovascular disease does put you at an increased risk of cardiac arrest. You know, with millions of Canadians affected, all of us in this room probably know someone 
at an increased risk of cardiac arrest. So if you're not doing it for yourself, do it for them. Mm -hmm. One more question and something that you just touched on there, Ben. Maybe I have done it years ago. Uh, Like anything in life, you want to refresher. How long should I go between courses? Yeah, our certifications are valid for three years, but data shows between the two to three year mark, the quality of skills we're able to provide our attention goes down. So really at maximum, every three years, we should be coming in person, you know, pumping that mannequin's chest, building that muscle memory. So if you have to respond, you know, you've built that muscle memory, you know, and hopefully that instinct kicks in. Don't want to be morbid, but maybe this increases the sense of urgency for people who are sort of on the fence. Oh, what should I or not? When sudden cardiac arrest happens, the heart stops beating and it happens really quickly that if they don't get intervention, the damage is done, right? Yeah. So our chance of survival decreases about every minute that we go without any sort of help. So if we think about, you know, it's one to two minutes to recognize, one to two minutes to get help on the way, another five or six minutes for first responders to arrive, you know, you can add up those numbers, you know, that that percentage left for your chance of survival isn't mm-hmm. positive, unfortunately. Ben, where do we go to sign up? Because this is uh, yeah, obviously timely uh, on, on the news of this week, but also at the same time, uh, super important. Yeah, so registration opens at 10 a.m. on our website, firstaidtrainingcalgary.com. Again, all registration is online only. And one thing we're doing for Calgary as well is even once this initial free training um, is given away and all the spots are filled, all of our programs for the entire month of Heart Month are available at a discounted rate. So even if you don't aren't quick enough to take advantage of the free program, you know, you still can register at a discounted rate to really learn those skills that we all need to know. Brilliant. Again, that starts at 10 a.m. this morning that you'll be able to sign up for the free classes, firstaidtrainingcalgary.com. Thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you. Ben Morasco is the Managing Director of First Aid Training Calgary.